Good evening. So, those two films, um, both incredible true stories. One, Everest, and the second, Hacksaw Ridge. Now, that film, Everest, is, is a film that really kind of epitomises the extremes of human endeavour and that heart for, for adventure. And, and Everest, the mountain, is like an icon for human endeavour. And it's perhaps the ultimate challenge for men that want to test themselves, want to risk everything in pursuit of their goal. But with one death in every 10 successful attempts, the, the risks are unquestionably high. Now, to climb Everest, I think, undoubtedly takes courage. It takes fitness. But more than anything else, it takes a heart for adventure. It takes the ability to accept the, the very likely possibility of death and tragedy. But to have climbed Everest, what a feeling that must be. It's hard to imagine that you'd be phased by anything else in life after you've climbed Everest. Now, that, that film, as I said, is actually based on a true story. And it was one of the single biggest accidents that ever took place on Everest when 11 people died in, in one incident. And it is a... a tragic and deeply moving story, but it's also a story of, of bravery, of human sacrifice and courage. And um, a story of one man in particular who, who refused to leave a dying man on the mountain, even though he knew that would mean certain death for himself. So in many ways, what that film is really about is the extremes of human desire and what that's capable of. And again, that film Hacksaw Ridge which we saw a trailer for. Again, another incredible true story about a man called Desmond Doss. And, and as the Second World War was unfolding, he felt convicted that he had to go and do his bit. He had to go and fight for freedom and justice. However, he'd also made a vow to God never to touch a weapon again following an incident in his past where he nearly shot his father. So he decided he would sign up to be a medic in the Second World War. Um, and it is an absolutely incredible story because he signed up to be a medic and he said, I'm not carrying a weapon. Um, and as many saw it as cowardice, but actually the courage to do what he did was just incredible. If you haven't seen the film, then I really, really would because it's a powerful picture of a man that had a humble and strong faith and did the most incredible acts of bravery as a result. Now, the reason for showing those two clips is there is a common theme between those two clips. Both of them are incredible stories of achievement, of bravery, of courage, of self-sacrifice. But neither of those stories would have been so if it weren't for the hearts of the men in question. Both of those stories are men that were living from the heart. Both of the stories are men that were living their desire for adventure, for freedom, for battle, for beauty. Both of those stories are men that are living from the heart as opposed to the head. Human reason and logic, i.e. your head, will not get you to the top of Everest. Your brain will soon tell you that the chances of death are far too high and, and it just doesn't warrant the effort, particularly when you consider the cost involved, the time involved and the fact it's just a, a finite event with no long-term benefits. And then as soon as you see the first avalanche or the numerous dead bodies that litter that mountain, your brain will be telling you, turn around. 
And then if you get past that treacherous Kumba icefall that we saw the guy crossing with a ladder, if you get past that and up into the death zone where your body is literally dying, your, your head will just be screaming at you, turn around. And then when others start to die around you, you're then left with a choice. Do you save yourself or do you stay up there and help others with the inevitable consequence? It will probably cost you your own life. Your head, your reason and logic will be telling you one thing, but your heart will be telling you very, very different things. The same is also true of that man, Desmond Doss, who put himself in the most incredible amount of danger with no, no means of defending himself. He was in the midst of one of the bloodiest battles in the Second World War on the island of Okinawa with absolutely no means of defending himself, thousands of men all around him shooting for their lives. The courage to do what he did undoubtedly came from the heart. In fact, that word courage is derived from the Latin word core, which means heart. Courage comes from the heart. So you may be pleased to hear that we're going to watch some more clips from that film, Hacksaw Ridge. And um, the context before we watch, the, watch this first series of clips is, uh, so the Second World War is unfolding. The Japanese have burled, uh, bombed Pearl Harbor. And he, Desmond Doss feels convicted. He needs to go and do his bit. But he says, I'm not carrying a weapon. And what you're going to see now is the opposition that he faced the opposition to him fulfilling his desire. If um, Dawson, sorry, Doss, Desmond Doss, was using reason and logic alone, he would have never have signed up to be a medic in the army with no means of defending himself. And what's more, as you saw from that clip, everyone was trying to stop him. His father, his fiance, and the army were all trying to stop him. If he had no heart, he would never have gone. Based on reason and logic alone, his actions were indeed madness. But as, as you'll come to see um, a bit later, Doss left a powerful legacy, but it took heart. And if we want to live powerful lives, it will take heart. If we want to be a great husband or love our children well, it will take heart. If we want to find our calling, live out our place in God's larger story, it will take heart. If you want to know and love God intimately, it will unquestionably take heart. As someone very wise once said, you are never a great man when you are more mind than heart. This isn't to say that we should dispense with all reason and logic and just act on the daily whims of our heart. Rather, we should be using our brains to decipher what's going on deep within us. Using our minds, seek, asking God for the wisdom to to help us understand what is a God-given desire of our heart and what is a distraction to his plan for our life. But make no doubt about it, desire is key. John Eldridge said, we are desire. It is the essence of the human soul. Absolutely nothing of human greatness is ever achieved without it. It was the desire to save others, to rescue others that led Doss into mortal danger. It was the desire for adventure that has led people to the top of Everest. That's what it looks like to live from the heart. And we are nothing without desire. We're just machines churning away day after day, resigned to a life of taxes and mortgage repayments. Without desire, we're literally dead, at least on the inside. We're like a whale stranded on a sandbank, slowly suffocating to death. The whale isn't living the way it was created to. 
It's being slowly crushed to death under its own weight. The heart and its desires are central if we're to live a life of faith, if we're to live a powerful life, which is why the heart is addressed more than any other subject in the Bible, more than obedience, more than worship, more than money, more than servanthood. And as it says in Proverbs, the, the heart and its desires are the wellspring of life. So what are those desires? What do these desires look like? Well, in John Eldridge's book, uh, Wild at Heart, he describes three desires which are common amongst all men. Yes, there are these desires that are unique to each of us as individuals, but there are also three desires that are essentially the essence of what make us men. Because remember in Genesis 1, when God was creating mankind, he said, male and female, he created them i.e. he didn't create this generic human being. He created us distinctly, uniquely as a man and as a woman. And the core to who we are as men is our heart and our heart's desires. Now, as I said, John Eldridge describes three desires, and those are a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to die for. And we're going to step through those desires relatively briefly now, but we will be coming back to those desires later in the weekend. So what if a desire for battle, a battle to fight? Well, um, films like Hacksaw Ridge, uh, Saving Private Ryan, Gladiator, I really love the films, but I don't particularly enjoy the more graphic and gruesome bits. And that film, Hacksaw Ridge, I watched with a friend, Steve, in the cinema, and after about 20 minutes of the battle scene, I turned to him and said, I don't think I can handle much more than this. It was, it was really uncomfortable watching. But equally there's something inside me that when I see scenes like that, there's something inside me that kind of says, yes, I want that. It's as if something is rising up in me and saying, yes, I want to fight for what is right as well. And that is really what is most moving about those films. It's that inherent aggression, that fierceness, that determination to fight for what is right, even to the point of death. Fundamentally, it's not about blood, guts and guns. It's about a heart that says, I will not let evil win. I will not yield. I will fight for you. Because so much of what is good and holy in this world needs to be fought for. Whether that be Wilberforce fighting for the abolition of slavery, whether that be fighting for the hearts of your, your wife or your children, whether that be fighting some addiction or some illness, only a man that's prepared to face opposition head-on, with a heart that says, I will not yield, will prevail. Just as we saw with Doss, who, who set his mind like flint, despite the opposition he was getting from his father, his girlfriend, the army, he would not yield to that. And it's that same desire that rises up in you when you see something that's not right. Just like Doss, when he heard of the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor, he said, that's not right. I must act. Now, perhaps you're thinking, this isn't really how I feel. I don't, uh, this isn't me. Well, let me ask you these questions. How would you react if you're driving down the motorway and someone flies past you, clearly texting on their mobile phone and cuts in front of you, narrowly missing your car? How would you react to that? Or how would you react if you heard that someone was, uh, someone was bullying your son or your daughter? Or maybe you saw someone 
make an inappropriate advance on your wife or your girlfriend, how would that make you feel? What would, would rise up in you? Um, one, of my, one of my good friends when I was at school was a guy called Rob. And um, he's a lovely guy, um, very polite, never got into any trouble, always had a smile on his face. Now, Rob and I were both big Swindon Town football club fans. And um, it was our home team, that's why we supported them. Yes, yes, very good. I know there's another Swindon Town fan in here. Well, I'm not alone. Um, I've lost my train of thought. Um, oh, yes. And um, we, used to, we used to travel around the country supporting them and watching them play football matches. And on one Easter Monday, we travelled up to Birmingham to see them play Birmingham City. And this was before the introduction of All-Seater Stadium. So we were stood, stood in the terracing. And the game didn't get off to a very good start. And by half-time, we were four goals to one down. But what then happened in the second half was the most incredible fight back you can possibly imagine. Our then player manager, Glenn Hoddle, pushed up into midfield and we ended up winning the game 6-4. It was an unbelievable day. And as that fifth goal went in, we celebrated with, with passion and delight, as you can imagine. And, and when, the, when the excitement died down, I looked around and I couldn't see Rob anywhere. I, didn't, I just didn't, couldn't see him. And so I turned to another friend of mine and said, where's Rob? And he pointed out that Rob, in his excitement, had fought his way through the crowd of Swindon fans who were all celebrating to where the home fans were. And he climbed up the railings so that he could look down on the home fans and share his delight with them. <laughs> now, I, now I, thought I'd know, I thought I knew Rob very, very well. So this was somewhat of a surprise to me. I didn't realise that latent aggression, that fierceness, that desire to win was in him. But it, but it was. And the same is true for all of us. You, know, you may doubt that that desire is in there, but it, it is. And you've probably noticed it because it's manifested itself in less appropriate ways, whether that be at a football match or whether that be when you get lost in traffic or whether that be when somebody spills milk on the carpet. The signs are there. We're going to watch another two clips now. And the first of them is a short clip and it's a commonly held view of a Christian man. And the second clip is a clip from Hacksaw Ridge. Now, as you watch these two clips back to back, ask yourself the question, which do you think is most like the image of a Christian man that the world has? And then ask yourself which one you would most like to be. Ned Flanders is um, unfortunately how I believe a lot of the world view a Christian man. And yes, it is a cartoon, but it's only found so funny by so many people because it resonates with what they believe to be a Christian man, this overly polite, timid uh, man with no hint of aggression or passion, a man that's more concerned about the colour of his curtains than he is fighting some great big battle. And sadly, it's, it's also an image that I think a lot of our culture deems acceptable. And I suspect that's why the reason is we've we're so familiar with the, the numerous acts of brutality and oppression that have been done in the name of Christianity over the years. But whatever, whatever the, the reasons, the consequences, I believe, are fatal. To try and live a life of faith with a theology that says aggression and fierceness is wrong is going to lead to a very, very confusing life. 
To tell a man that having a heart for battle is a sin is to emasculate a man. As C.S. Lewis put it, we castrate the gelding and we bid him be fruitful. We can't live a fruitful life without that latent fierceness and aggression to do what is right. And I do think we've got ourselves pretty muddled in Christianity as to where we stand on battle. Um, But yes, Jesus was clear that we should love our enemies and the gospel is very clear that love and forgiveness are at the heart of what that message, the message is. But equally, the Old Testament and the New Testament was against a backdrop of war and battle, both physical and spiritual. In Ephesians, we are told to be angry but don't sin. Anger and aggression in itself is not a sin. You'll no doubt uh, recall the, the account of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and as, as Jesus is going towards the tomb, it's clear that he knows what has happened and what's, what he's going to do. Because he says to his disciples as they're going there, Lazarus has died and I'm going to raise him for the dead. And as he gets there, he first, come, he first meets Mary and Mary is grieving. And there's a, a beautiful moment where Jesus meets her in her grieving and he too is reduced to tears. But then by the time Jesus gets to the tomb, his demeanour has completely changed. Now, most English translations of that passage use a phrase that says Jesus was deeply moved. But unfortunately, that doesn't come close to the moment when Jesus confronted death head on. In that passage, John 11, there's a word in verse 38, um, a Greek word that can be translated literally to mean bellow with anger. When Jesus approached that tomb and commanded Lazarus to come out. He wasn't calling out like a head teacher calls out to an assembly. He was roaring. He was bellowing. He was absolutely furious. Why? It's a bit odd in some ways. It says he was furious, but why? He knew what had happened. He knew what was going to happen. Well, Jesus was furious at the most toxic consequence of when evil entered our world, loss of life. That's not part of God's plan. Death, pain, suffering, it's not God's plan. Jesus was furious at the injustice of death. Jesus was and is the most compassionate and merciful man that we, could, we will ever meet, but he was also fierce. Don't forget he's also the Lion of Judah as well as the Lamb of God. But if we're not careful, we'll take that, that perfectly balanced personality And in the words of Dorothy Sayers, we'll declaw the Lion of Judah and make him a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Jesus was and is fierce. And you, dear brothers, are created in his image. So, a battle to fight and now an adventure to live. Back to that film Everest we saw a a trailer for. In the, um, in the film, there's a, a reporter that's on the trip and there's a, there's a scene where he asks all the climbers, why? Why do you do it? Why do you take the risk? Why do you experience that pain and suffering? To which they all retort with that classic George Mallory quote, because it's there. And as flippant as that response seems, it is kind of the answer because it really comes down to that desire for risk and uncertainty, that heart for adventure is really the driving force. 
Um, Edmund Hillary said, people don't climb Everest for scientific reasons, they do it for the hell of it. I'm going to show you another short clip, and it's from um, one of the episodes that Bear Grylls was doing where he was taking celebrities into the wild for a wild weekend. And in this clip, you're going to see him taking Stephen Fry into the wild. It is a, it's a really fascinating watch, that episode. You can, you can get it online for free. Um, and um, it, it was fascinating because we're so used to seeing, watching Stephen Fry well within his comfort zone, being very funny on TV as a, as a comedian or as a presenter. But in, in this episode, we saw him way outside his comfort zone. And there's a, there was a brilliant moment in it, and unfortunately I couldn't get the exact clip for you, but he's coming down off the mountain. He's just abseiled down this, this waterfall. And he gets to the bottom and he, he turns around and he's, he expresses something that I'd, I've heard many a man say in similar circumstances. And he says, I have never felt so alive. Because that's what adventure does to a man. It makes us come alive. Now we tend to think of adventure in terms of climbing a mountain or going to the South Pole, but actually it comes in many different guises. Fundamentally, it's about risk and uncertainty. It's about setting off with a goal in mind and actually not being sure whether you'll get there or not. It's about not being sure what you're going to experience on the way. And we are presented with adventures constantly in our lives. The only question is whether we choose to accept them or not. Now that adventure could come in the form of climbing a mountain, but it could equally come in the form of moving to a new country, leaving your job to start a business, planting a church, pursuing the heart of a woman. Fundamentally, it's an uncertain adventure. Because it's through adventure that we discover what we're capable of. It's about testing ourselves, perseverance, building of character. And it's often the case that the, during the adventure itself, it's not particularly enjoyable. And it's only after the event, when we look back on it, that we actually take joy from the discomfort. Now, I, um, when I was at junior school, I did a project on China. And it left me with this real fascination for the country and a desire to, to travel there one day. But it wasn't until I was at university that I actually fulfilled that desire. And I planned this backpacking trip from the southern tip in Hong, in Hong Kong, essentially, all the way up to Beijing. Um, but all I, all I booked in advance was the flight there and the flight back. Now, to be honest, I was woefully ill-equipped for the trip. Um, and it was actually very, very hard. Um, English was not really spoken at all, and the language was impossible. The food hygiene was far from five-star, which left us with five weeks' worth of, of diarrhoea. Um, so it, it just—it was just very difficult. And I had one, one experience. We were travelling. We were taking a bus trip, a ten-hour bus trip across some fairly mountainous terrain. And uh, all of a sudden, the bus just came to a, a stop, and there was traffic in front of us. And then this queue formed behind us, and we were stuck. The reason being was that an avalanche had covered the entire road, and we were stuck on that side of that mountain all day with nothing to eat apart from some maize that somebody had. Um, harvested from a field. It was an uncomfortable experience. In fact, that whole, that whole um, holiday was, was not a comfortable experience, but it did leave me with a confidence that I could go anywhere in the world and survive. The discomfort of that adventure had actually shaped me. As T.S. Eliot 
said, only those that risk going too far can possibly know how far one can go. Because a man needs to be tested. Because it's through the adventure, the challenge of the adventure, that we find the answer to the question of, do I have what it takes? That's why we're both drawn to it and we fear it. Because what if it goes wrong? What if I leave my job to start up a business and it fails? What if I plant a church and no one comes? What if I pursue the woman and she says no? Well, that uncertainty is absolutely the point of it. But sadly for many men, that fear of failure is too great. And maybe that's true for all of us to some extent. We're we're so afraid that the answer to that question of do I have what it takes will be no, that we play it safe. We seek the safety of a of a you know, a well-paid job with a good salary. We try to stay in the realms of what we can control with our reason and logic. We shun adventures on the grounds that we're just too busy and we suppress that desire for adventure. But a safe life is not an attractive life. I've seen many men, particularly in my time working in the corporate world, where their primary aim was to build a safe and comfortable life for themselves so that they can retire comfortably. But that is not life in all its fullness. It's resignation. And it's almost certainly not what God would have for us because that's why he created us with this heart for adventure. Because faith is ultimately a risk. It's about putting your trust in something you can't be 100% sure of. Putting your trust in something you can't prove by physical means nor see. We can't have a full life of faith if we're not prepared to accept risk. And there's a very interesting chapter in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, which is entitled Examples of Great Faith. And in it, the the author um, uses various examples of men of great faith, Abraham, Moses, Daniel, David. And all of the examples, the individual has been taken on in a journey of incredible risk. There's been an incredible amount of risk and uncertainty in that man's life. And that is the journey that God took them on. The parable of the talents is also a great story about risk. You remember the story that the the master leaves his home and he entrusts his three servants with his property, each according to their ability. And then he returns home. Two servants come up to him and say, "We've, we've doubled your money and they are rewarded accordingly. But then the third servant comes up and says this, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. Now, incredibly, that servant, for doing that, was sent to hell. Now, it's, it's incredible because he, he hasn't committed any crime, seemingly. He hasn't done anything overtly wrong, but yet he's sent to hell. Because essentially what he said to God is, I don't trust you. How we live our lives reveals what we think about God. If we're really not prepared to accept any risk and uncertainty, what it really says is, I don't trust you. These desires that we've, um, we're touching on, desire for battle and desire for adventure, are so very evident in little boys. Um, if, you, if you've got a, a son or you, you know a young boy, you will know that to be true. And I've seen it very much in my son, Reuben. And over the years, um, what he really wants to do is fight, play fight all the time. And over the years, he's invented numerous different games. They're just all about fighting. And the latest one, the latest one is, is he calls it islands. And it, what it really entails is 
we, tr we have to wrestle each other off our double bed at home. But before he does it, he likes to strip to his underpants and paint this kind of war symbol on his chest. Now, I, did, I had a photo. I, I thought it probably wasn't appropriate, so I, I, I chose not to, uh, to show it. And that heart for adventure as well has been so clear. And I, and I think with little boys, they, they're just not as corrupted by the world as we have been with our, our longer years. They're so much closer to, to what they were created to be. And um, I was in our, our kitchen at home once, and my son Ruben was upstairs playing. And I think it might have even been with Matt's son, Micah. And um, there was a huge amount of noise going on, as there always is. And then it went quiet. And I know from experience, when it goes quiet, that's usually a sign that something's about to happen. And then after about five seconds, there was this burst of excitement, and they came flying down the stairs. And they went racing through the kitchen and out the back door. And I noticed that Reuben was clutching these night vision play night vision goggles that he'd got for Christmas. And as they flew out, out the back door, I had just enough time to say, Reuben, it's dark outside, it's winter. To which she shouted back, yeah, yeah, we know, we're going skateboarding with night vision goggles. <laughs> and why not? Why not? So, back to the, uh, the core desires. Battle to fight, adventure to live, beauty to die for. Nothing can affect the heart of a man like beauty. Why is it, as Frederick Buchner said, that a fragrance in the air, a certain passage of a song, an old photograph falling out of the pages of a book, the sound of somebody's voice in the hall makes your heart leap and fills your eyes with tears. Because beauty affects our hearts. Beauty stirs our hearts and reminds us that we're more than just reason and logic. And I think it is staggering the amount of beauty in this fallen world. You only have to look at the view outside. Clear warm seas, mountains, dolphins, freshly cut grass, claret, coffee, laughter, friendship, all of these things, all such beauty cannot be appreciated without a heart because we're not appreciating those things with our reason and our logic. A few months back, I was, I was at home um, attempting to pray in my bedroom and my attention was caught by the laughter of my children downstairs. And it's one of my favourite noises in the world. It's perhaps that perfect expression of how we will feel when his kingdom comes fully, that uncontrollable expression of joy. And, and it, it, it compelled me to stop what I was trying to pray about and thank God for the wonder of laughter. But then it got me thinking, how do we make sense of laughter if, as many will contest, we are nothing more than sophisticated animals whose emotions are mere chemical reactions in our brains? It's that same secular view that, that denies the presence of a spiritual core to who we are, denies the presence of a heart, as the Bible puts it. And the same can be said of anything that's beautiful. Great piece of music, a great work of art, a lovely bottle of wine, an amazing sunset. If we believe that we don't have a heart, how do we make sense of our reactions to those things, that they're just chemical reactions that have helped our forebears to stay alive and that have been passed down to us in our genes. Alas, if such a secular view of the world and us is true, then all that is beautiful is but an illusion. We could be taken up by a beautiful sunset or moved to tears by the ending of a story 
it will tear that moment from you to think that that is no more than a series of chemical reactions in your brain that has helped your ancestors find food and escape predators. To think of ourselves without a heart, a heart that is affected by the beauty of God, I believe is to see the world in black and white. As Leonard Bernstein once admitted as a, an atheist, he said, he was expressing that often when he heard great music, he sensed heaven. And he said, Beethoven has the real goods, the stuff from heaven, the power to make you feel at the finish. Something is right in the world. There is something that checks out th throughout, that follows its own low consistent law, sorry, follows its own law consistently. Something we can trust that will never let us down. Our hearts desire beauty because we long for a time when we'll be immersed in it forever, when we'll be immersed in God's beauty when his kingdom comes fully, because eternity is set on our hearts. Now, when we think of beauty in its many, many forms, there is one beauty that stands, or one form of beauty that stands head and shoulders above all the rest, and it's the beauty that has caused men to start wars and risk their very lives. And that beauty is Eve. As the story of creation is unfolding in Genesis, God is gradually creating this magnificent world in which we now live. He starts by creating light in the sky and land, but then he continues to create with ever-increasing glory. Next comes trees and plants and fruits, followed by the sun and moon and stars. And then if that isn't enough, then he starts to create animals, dolphins, elephants, parrots, and many, many more. And all of it is pronounced good. But then on the sixth day, he does something staggering by creating something in his very image. And Adam steps forth as a glorious man created in the image of God, completely without sin, pure and unblemished. And he's declared the son of God, lowercase s. But then God says something's not right, something is missing. So he causes Adam to fall asleep and he takes a rib from his side and he creates Eve. Eve is the crescendo, she's the ultimate masterpiece, the final act of creation. And Eve also bears the image of God, but in a very, very different way to Adam. She is beauty. Nothing can stop a man in his tracks like a beautiful woman, just as we saw with uh, Doss there where he sees Dorothy for the first time and I'm sure everyone here knows that to be true the world knows it to be true advertisers know it to be true that's why they put a, a beautiful woman on anything whether it be an insurance policy or a motorbike it may be irrelevant but it will get your attention men have gone to war over the woman think Helen of Troy men have risked presidencies over the beauty, think Bill Clinton. Men will risk their very lives. Eve can affect our hearts like nothing else, but it's not, again, it's not our minds that are captivated by Eve. It's Our hearts are captured by the, the, the beauty of God in human form. And that desire for beauty really manifests itself in two ways. The first of those is to want to pursue her, to be near her, to win her, just as we saw with with Doss in that clip, who just wanted to be, just wanted to be near Dorothy. He just couldn't stop staring at her. And the second way it manifests itself is as a desire to, 
to rescue her, to fight for her, to, to die for her. And we see that in all of those great films that we love, whether that be Superman and Lewis Lane, Wallace and Muron, uh, Jack and Rose in the Titanic, Aragorn and Arwen. All of those great films have a rescue of a beauty. And they stir that desire up in us for the same beauty. So, these desires that we've been talking about are at the core of what makes us men, and, and we will need them. If we want to live a life of faith, a powerful life, then we will need those desires. And, and they are f so fundamental to how we're created. They don't simply disappear if they're not being fulfilled. If they're not being fulfilled, they'll likely manifest themselves in less helpful ways. That heart for battle can likely manifest itself in aggressive behaviour, aggression to those closest to you, shouting at your children over spilt milk or getting angry with those that get in your way in the car. That desire for adventure, well, maybe extreme sports or gambling or the risk of an affair. And beauty, well, lust and pornography are obvious examples there. David White uses a term where he says it's the devouring animal of our disowned desire. When it's starved, it will literally eat anything. And all those examples I just mentioned are really symptoms of a fundamentally good desire that has been misplaced. Misplacing our desires and letting them lead us into dangerous places is a very, very real risk. But there's another risk with our desire, and that's that we will bury them out of fear. Most of the time, we're more comfortable staying in the realms of what we can control, staying in the realms of our reason and logic. We don't like to venture into the realms of desire because it's uncertain. So we suppress those desires out of fear. And we also bury our desires, our heart and its desires, when our hearts become wounded. Perhaps the wound came through a battle lost or an adventure failed. Maybe you planted a business and it planted a church and it failed or started up a business and it failed or pursued the beauty and she said no. But when we're wounded and we bury our hearts and we lock our, our hearts away, we can't live a life of desire because to live a life of desire is to live from the heart. And when we lock our hearts away, the result is that they slowly wither and die because without our hearts and our hearts' desires, we're destined to live a very dull and boring life and certainly not a life like some of those great men in the Bible, whether it be Abraham, Moses or David. Peter Craft, I think, summed it up brilliantly in the quotes in the front of your books where he said, dullness, not doubt, is the greatest enemy of faith. So, what you may ask, is all this got to do with Jesus? And the answer to that question is absolutely everything. Firstly, Jesus' mission on earth and now with us is to restore in us everything that's been lost, restore our true selves, our hearts. In Luke 19, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, typically, we think that to mean it's about salvation, it's about becoming a Christian. But actually, what he's referring to is something that has been lost in all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike. And that is the real man, the man that we were created to be. And his mission was to get that man back, restore us and our hearts and their desires. 
in chapters three and four of the book and Luke of the book of Luke, we we read about essentially the start of Jesus's mission on earth, and there's three big incidents happening in seemingly very quick succession. And the first of those incidents is in chapter three, we read about uh, Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River by John and God speaks, God the Father speaks out loud, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he's essentially saying, Jesus, you have what it takes, you're ready. And then straight after that incident, we read how Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, an account of which is unquestionably a battle between Jesus and the enemy, with Jesus remaining true and coming out victorious. And then the third incident that happens in these chapters is Jesus then returns to Galilee and he goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he appears in the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stands up to teach and somebody hands him the Old Testament scroll and he opens it at Isaiah 61 and he says this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Then he sat down. That is how he announced the start of his mission on earth. In short, to heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. Those three events that I just mentioned embody a life of battle, beauty and adventure. They start with God speaking out loud to Jesus saying, you're ready for the adventure. You're ready. Then he goes into the wilderness to do battle with the enemy. And then he declares the start of his mission to rescue us, his bride, his beauty. Jesus lived a life full of the desires for battle, beauty and adventure. And you, as I said before, are created in his image. And that desire for battle was prevalent throughout his life, whether that be through the ongoing battle with the Pharisees and the religious leaders or driving the, the money changers out of the temple with a whip or doing battle with Satan in the wilderness. And I don't really have the words, I thought about it, but I couldn't think of appropriate words to describe what that must have been like to go face to face with Satan himself, not some lesser demon, but Satan himself in the wilderness. And I don't think the images from Hacksaw Ridge probably even come close to describing what that battle really must have been like. And what of adventure and risk? Well, I don't think there's any greater risk than, it, than trusting in someone else, else and to the point of death. And that's what Jesus did when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's sat there praying to Father with, with drops of blood pouring from his brow. And he's saying, take this cup from me, but thy will be done. He's trusting in the Father, even to the point of death. And beauty? Well, he um, described himself as the bridegroom in the book of Ephesians and Revelation, both describe how we will be reunited with Jesus as his bride. And so his mission on earth was to rescue us, his bride, his beauty. His mission was all about the pursuit of beauty. So we are going to close with one clip. Um, and it's another clip from, clip from Hacksaw Ridge. And it's towards the end of the film and the context for this. Um, now, Hacksaw Ridge was this ridge in Okinawa and the Americans had climbed up onto the ridge as you, you saw a bit 
before. And they'd been driven back off the ridge by the Japanese. And they fled off um, that ridge, but there's still about 100 men left wounded up on the top. And one man stays up there. It is an unbelievable story. Um, that man apparently rescued, well, I say apparently, it is true, he rescued 75 men single-handed up on that ridge, alone, with no means of defending himself. It is, it is a very, very powerful story, and it will m most likely, if you haven't seen the film, it will make you weep when you do. But why is it such a powerful story? Well, it's really powerful because what it's representing is so much of the gospel, and there's so much of the character of Jesus in what Desmond Doss achieved. Doss was a very unlikely hero. He wasn't a naturally aggressive man, but yet he was strong in battle with an iron will just as the same as Jesus was a very unlikely Messiah. People were expecting a Messiah to come and overthrow the government and become king, not suffer and die. Dors was rejected, beaten, accused, put on trial by the army. The world didn't know what to do with Dors, just as the world didn't know what to do with Jesus. He was rejected, accused and beaten. He was put on trial. And the Romans and the religious elite didn't know what to do with him, so they had him killed. Dos went into hell to bravely rescue those that were wounded, just as Jesus went into hell to rescue us. Dos was a man who was utterly reliant on his heavenly father for his strength. That was his strength that enabled him, as you heard in those words, to go repeatedly back to find another man just as Jesus was completely reliant on the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, take this cup from me, but thy will be done. And those words, those words that, that Doss used, and they were his true words, at the end of the film there is actually a, um, an interview with him when he was still alive, and that was really what he was doing. He was praying to the Father, Lord, just help me get one more. And it reminds me of the parable of the lost sheep, with Jesus as the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one, each time looking at the value of the individual. Just as Dos was looking at the value of the individual, even rescuing Japanese, even rescuing the sergeant that tried to beat him out of the army, just as Jesus rescued all of us, came to rescue all of us, even those that accused and beat him. My favourite quote, I think, from the film, though, was, you saw it in the trailer, um, when Doss was on trial with the American, with American army. And, and he says, whilst he's on trial, trial, with the whole world set on tearing itself apart, is it really wrong to want to put a little bit, back of it, a little bit of it back together again? What he was expressing there is that heart to restore things, to bring things back to how they should be. And that's what Jesus' mission is with us. That's what we're here for this weekend, is to seek to restore in us the men that God intended us to be, he wants us to be. And that's what we're going after today, tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, is the restoration of our hearts.